If you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, your Bible, Bible app will do. Uh, there's some Bibles in front of you if you need one there as well. Um, as we tend to do, uh, we're just going through the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, a section at a time. We're going to finish 1 Thessalonians today, and then next week we'll go right into 2 Thessalonians uh, as we're studying this series called In the Meantime, How Do We Live Faithfully Right Now for the Lord as We Await His Return? Rather than uh, some Christians and some churches and cult groups who get way too excited about things related to the end times that we shouldn't get too excited about, God wants us to live faithfully for the Lord right now as we anticipate His return and that's what this book has been all about and this series has been all about. And interestingly today, the theme of this last big section of 1 Thessalonians has to do with what a healthy church looks like right now here in the meantime. Like we really believe in the importance of the local church. Not just because I get paid by the local church, right? But we really believe in the importance of the local church. As a matter of fact, that the universal church, the big C church, is the one entity that God uh, designed and designated to fulfill His work in the world, right? From the book of Acts chapter 2 all the way 2,000 years ago. That This is the way that God has designed to get His work done, His mission accomplished on earth. Is this thing called the church, and Jesus ordained the church, and God gave promises to the church, and we believe in the importance of the church. You ever been part of a church that went sideways? You ever been part of a church where the leadership, something crazy happened with the leadership, or some different doctrine or idea or ideology, and it went sideways? Like, unfortunately, churches go sideways regularly. If you were to think about the things that would designate a church as a healthy church, in your mind, think about some of the things that would make your list. Hopefully they would have things to do with Jesus and, and God and the Bible. Hopefully they would have things to do with good, important, healthy relationships among other people who are like-minded in the faith with you, with you as well. But what do you think when you think about a healthy church? And then maybe what do you think when you think about an unhealthy church? For those of you who call this church your home church, how do you think Puyallup Community Baptist Church is doing at being a healthy church? Now, don't hold up your scorecards quite yet. We'll wait on that one a little bit. But hopefully, we think that we're doing a pretty decent job. But how would we know that? The way that we know that is we open God's Word, and we look at God's Word, and when He starts to talk about things that, that would designate a church as a healthy church, we use that as our scorecard. And that, in fact, is what Paul is going to do, the Apostle Paul, as he finishes this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And what's really cool is that this letter, letter was written to a young church that Paul himself had started. And a bunch of young Christians who were growing. It is an encouraging letter. In fact, probably, as I've said before, probably the most encouraging letter in the New Testament is this letter that we've been written. They were doing a good job. They were healthy in many ways. And Paul is writing this to them to say, here are some ways that you can continue and remain and continue to grow healthy. I said this to the first service and I'll say it again. I feel, I believe that Puyallup Community Church is in a healthy place right now. Do we have a lot of work to do? Starting with right up front, starting with this guy, right? Yeah, you're all really nodding now, that concerns me. Yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. But man, at the end of the day, 
as Lauren and I look at the church and as he's doing his ministry, he's teaching uh, his class right now and I'm here right now and as we're working together and doing what we're doing, like we think that, that we're doing a good job but there's still things to work on. And I think the things that Paul is going to lay out in, in our text today will help us to just continue to grow, continue to be faithful. So what I want you to hear today is an encouraging message that we can continue and keep going on. Now, this is also a sermon. I, I try to vary it in the way that, that you know, I explain things and to try to keep us you know, uh, centered in the Word, but also just explaining it in different ways. When I was in college and seminary, I took uh, courses called homiletics. It's like the art of preaching and how do you preach and present and things like that. I didn't do real well because I was a little unorthodox. Can you imagine that? I was a little unorthodox, and they liked really like standardized outlines with three points, a little poem at the end to wrap it all up, and I didn't do well in that way. Well, I'm going to take this recording, and I'm going to send it to all my homiletics profs because they will be so proud with the message that I'm going to preach today. It's going to be so standard. It's going to be so basic. It's going to be so four points, alliterated. They all start with the letter R. How many of you are note takers? Do you like to take notes? We got some note takers? Yes, indeedy. This is your day. Your pencil is going to have smoke coming off of it by the end. I'm going to put a bunch of stuff on PowerPoint. Those of you that learn that way are going to be losing your minds, and the rest of you are going to be losing your minds in a different way, right? But the way that this lays out, here's what's interesting. We haven't got a lot of commands from 1 Thessalonians, a whole lot of do this and don't do that. There was one little section. So the writer, Paul, takes all of them and sticks them right here for us. 20 commands. How many of you love to be told what to do? Oh, yeah. Tell me, give me something to do. This is your thing. 20 things. I'm going to break them into four chunks, four sections, make them manageable. I'm not good at following rules. Most of you aren't either, right? Thank you. But lots of commands. And again, we'll just break them down and I'll give you them an outline. I'll put a lot of things on, on the screen so hopefully we can see them and understand them. Now for some of you, because even at one point I'm going to double alliterate. Now this is going to blow, yeah I know, it's going to blow your minds. It blew mine too. So I need to tell you this. I did not make this sermon through chat GPT. Okay. I didn't use artificial intelligence to come up with this. Uh, this is all original as far as I know, because some of you are going to be like, that looks too smooth for Steve. We know him. He didn't come up with that on his own. No, he, he did, for better or for worse, so we'll see what happens. Uh, but as we dig into it today, what do healthy churches look like? First thing that we'll see, verses 12 and 13, is that healthy churches know how to respect spiritual authority. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, he says, We ask you, brothers or brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord. And to admonish, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So this is a, a tough point for a few reasons. This is not a pastor telling his church to please respect him more. Please don't hear that in any way. In fact, I'm happy. I would say thank you to this church. I came here 10 years ago at 34 years old. The fact that you let me stand up here every week and open God's word and that this church has been so uh, overwhelmingly welcoming to me and welcoming to the teaching of God's word, like I'm thankful for that. So this is emphatically not a young pastor, young-ish pastor now. <laughs> yeah. Not a young-ish pastor saying, please just wait. Saying, please respect me. Um, I feel very respected. And talking to Pastor Lauren, the, the same thing. 
But what God will tell all of us together is that for all of us, there are people who are over us in our lives. And for all of us, man, it's so important that we understand what it looks like to respect those in spiritual authority. And I want to acknowledge this morning that this is difficult for two reasons. Before I unpack exactly how we do that, for two reasons. The one is that we live in a culture that is, uh, there's a cultural aversion to authority on all levels. None of us like to be told what to do. None of us like to have people over us. Typically, we see the people who are over us as the bad guy, as the person to be thwarted or to be run around. And so there's a a culture of aversion in our culture, uh, an aversion to authority in our culture at large. And I get that. Like, I understand that. That was me in high school. I always got in trouble for not showing respect for authority. And what can happen sometimes is we can take our aversion to, to cultural leadership, especially in the political realm, okay? And we can take our aversion to leadership and our aversion to authority uh, in, in the secular realm, and we can import that into our response to authority figures in the church. And that's never a good place to be. That was one of the most difficult things around COVID and the woke movement and all of those different things is that we had a lot of distrust. As if you consider yourself a conservative person, you developed a lot of mistrust for leadership. And I didn't feel it in this church, but many churches felt that same distrust of leadership come into their church. Much of that was well-founded because of how leaders acted. But number one is that we don't want this aversion to authority and culture to come in and infiltrate the church and how we respond to the God-given authorities in our church. But number two, the second reason that this responding to authority is so hard is because of spiritual abuse in the church. That there have been many men, and some of you have sat under them or have have had bad experiences where someone used a platform or a stage or used God's word in such a way that was spiritually abusive, emotionally abusive, that the rules and the regulations and the guidelines and the you must do this and you have to do that. Some of you have sat under pastors in situations that demanded respect and commanded respect and were down on you if you didn't do that. And so there's been spiritual abuse of authority that has caused a lot of our aversion to authority that makes this whole idea of of how we respond properly to authority very, very difficult. So I want to actually read a different passage. You don't have to turn. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this. It's a heavy, heavy passage for me as a pastor. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What God's word teaches me as a pastor is that every time I come up here and open the word, every time I sit and counsel someone and talk to someone, that when you come and you make this church your church home, that you are are part of what has been entrusted to me and entrusted to Pastor Lauren And that there will be a day, we're talking about being faithful until the Lord returns, that there will be a day when the Lord returns, and we'll all stand before him and give account of the things that we've done. But as a pastor, there's going to be like an extra accounting. And it's going to be, how did you do with my flock? And when the Lord Jesus says that to me, that that gives me goosebumps actually right now. This is a heavy task of authority. 
I want you to see that and to know that, that we take that very, very seriously because I realize that there's been a spiritual abuse in a lot of places and in a lot of ways, and we want to hold ourselves highly accountable. In fact, this passage, will break it down like this, that it, it, implicitly it gives leaders these, this charge, these commands, to work hard, number one. You see it right there in the text. We ask that you, brothers, respect those who who labor among you in the Lord. Verse 13, to esteem them very highly in love because of what? Not because of their position, not because of their authority, but because of their work. Spiritual leadership is hard work, and spiritual leaders must work hard. This is pastors, this is elders, this is Sunday school teachers, this is anyone who has a position of spiritual authority in the church. We laugh and joke around that pastors only work on Sundays, right? It's kind of funny. But man, I want to call you and tell you that at 3 o'clock in the morning when my phone's ringing, right? I want to tell you that on my day off on a Friday when my phone is ringing. We've got something that's got to be done. We all realize that the call to ministry is a a call to hard work. I would say this, that, that, that ministry can be a place for lazy people to hide out. It can be a place for lazy men to hide out. I, I knew a story of a, of a church a friend of mine was part of, and the pastor, he was like, it was weird because there was always Amazon boxes coming into the church. And so the pastor's like pastime was ordering stuff on Amazon to make the church better. Like pa- pastoral ministry can be a place for lazy people to hide out. But you will know it if I'm being lazy, won't you? You'll know it from how I, how I preach and teach God's word. You'll know if I'm being lazy. For spiritual leaders, this this is how it works. We don't appoint spiritual leaders and then expect them to do the work of the ministry. We look for people who are already doing the work of the ministry, and that shows that they are in some ways qualified to be spiritual leaders. Does that make sense? We don't find people who are just sitting on the bench, sitting on the sidelines, don't have a heart for service, because we know that spiritual leaders must work hard. They also must take responsibility, and you can see that when it says they labor among you and are over you in the Lord. To be over someone is not a position of authority as much as it is a position of responsibility. I heard a pastor who was talking about that important uh, shift in thinking. Authority means I stand over you and you must listen to me and you must submit to me and I have the authority and am the authority and so that means it's your job to obey me. Many pastors have, have acted in that way. Many leaders have acted in that way. That's an improper understanding of spiritual leadership at all levels, at, in the home, at church, at all levels. What we have to see is this is a position of grave responsibility. To be the head of the home, grave responsibility. To be a leader at church, spiritual leadership is a heavy responsibility. I do not look at being over a church as some great position of authority. You see, that's one of the other things that pastoral ministry has attracted power-hungry people at times. Look at me. I have the power. Look at me. I'm in control. You can usually tell that person because they don't want to give any ministry away. They have to be the soul and the head and in charge of all things. They're the hub around which the entire, entire church runs. You know what I love? Lauren and I love it when somebody comes up and tells us about something that's happening at church and we don't even know. I didn't even know that person was running that ministry. Cool, right? Yeah, and at the end of the day, we want to take the responsibility that spiritual leadership is, and related to that, to lead respectably. You notice what it says, it's a little phrase, 
They are over you in the Lord. That I have the Lord to answer to. That I need to lead this church. And the spiritual leadership is important. And that we as a team of leaders, our elders, like we need to step up and we need to take leadership and provide direction and spiritual oversight and spiritual authority. But we must do so respectably. That last phrase that's up there, to admonish courageously, is, a, is an interesting one. It says, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You know what it means to admonish someone? To admonish means to give a strong warning in love. To give a, a stern instruction in a loving way. Like a parent who's warning and instructing a kid out of love, but they understand like the, the gravity of the situation. And so they're, they're giving that instruction not as a suggestion. To admonish is difficult. The idea of, of admonishing here has the idea of correcting doctrine and uh, correcting false doctrine and, and false like morality, right? Telling people they shouldn't be living the way that they're living. And doing that in a loving way. And here's what I would say. That this idea of admonishing is very, very unpopular today. Admonishing is very unpopular in a tolerance-heavy society. One of the cardinal virtues and values that we hold as a culture, a society today is this. You don't, we make a bargain with each other. You don't tell me I'm wrong and I won't tell you you're wrong. And what I have said many times, when nobody can be wrong, everybody's right. Lack of authority always leads to anarchy. To admonish, just like a parent who admonishes a child, loves that child. We wouldn't say to the parent who just lets their kid do whatever they want and never call them on it, that they love the kid. And jobs of, one of the jobs of spiritual authority is to courageously admonish. Sometimes we do that by opening God's word and preaching and teaching. Other times we do that in a counseling context but in love and in respect to be willing to do that those are the marks of what make a good leader when a leader is doing what a leader should do it usually makes it a lot easier for the members and i use that collectively the members to do what god's called them to do to respect to esteem to show love for to get along with and that's what the things in the text here says that, that respecting spiritual authority means all of those pieces. And as we do what God has called us to do as leaders, and you do what God has called you to do as members, then we work in a healthy way together, right? That makes a healthy church. You know, my, my attitude towards spiritual authority says a lot about my attitude toward the authority of God as well. Sometimes my pushback towards spiritual authority is more a pushback toward the authority of God. And so as we think about healthy churches, know that healthy churches respect spiritual authority. And again, as I said at the beginning, I want to reiterate again by saying thank you to Puyallup Community Baptist Church over the course of 10 years. And a lot of the faces have changed. But at this time, more than any other time, I feel as a spiritual leader, I, I feel the ability and the freedom to do what God has called me to do. I feel the ability and freedom to open God's word and proclaim and admonish and teach and instruct and do what God's called me to do. I feel that we have the accountability that has been set up and that we need, that people can come and do come and say, hey, you said this. I'm not sure if that was the best thing to say or way to say it. 
that there's a health here. If I say, let's keep it up, right? Good. All right, number two. We're to rescue struggling Christians. Healthy churches rescue struggling Christians. I don't know if you watch these TV shows where, uh, you know, they put the hidden cameras all over the jungle and then they like watch the animals and they go do the little things that they do and they're like, wow, look at that. That mother ate her young child. That's weird, right? It's really weird when you watch it in culture. Or when, I mean, when you watch it in the jungle, it's even worse when you see it happen at church. Like Christians are notorious for leaving their weak behind and eating their <laughs> weak young, right? We see the guy who's got a problem, he's got an addiction, and instead of coming alongside him and helping him and bringing him along and getting him counsel, we drag him up in front of the church, tell everybody about it, ostracize him, and wonder why he doesn't love Jesus and has a problem with church, right? And Christians have been notorious for the way that we treat struggling Christians. And I watch the, you know, Planet Earth or whatever TV show, and I'm like, wow, it looks a lot like that chimpanzee that's eating its baby right now. We shouldn't be like that as a church. We should rescue struggling Christians. We should care for Christians. who. This should be a hospital where people who are having a difficult time can be rescued and cared for. And this is exactly how Paul says it in verses 14 and 15. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. By the way, who is he talking to here? We, had, we urge you pastors? Who? We urge you brothers. And all the ladies are like, yes, brothers and sisters right? Adelphoi, the guys and the gals, the women and the men, everybody together. We're supposed to, this, this is for all of us together to care for each other, but I don't like confrontation. Sorry. It says admonish. He says, we urge you to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to Everyone, here's how this works. Here's how we rescue struggling Christians. Number one, we admonish the idol. You know what admonish means, right? Strong warning. Hey, this is not good. You need to do something different. Idol, someone who's lazy, okay? And it's not just somebody who's lazy. It's lazy, unruly, disorderly, and undisciplined. All of that is wrapped up. Somebody who's lazy and unruly and undisciplined, disrupts order. Isn't it funny how all that usually goes in the same package, right? You know that person? They're like, wow, that's just a checklist for their life. There are people like that who make their home at church, right? They're lazy, and you need to tell them, find a job. When you work, you have less time to make a mess and be mean, right? Get a job. Find a ministry in church. Don't be lazy. We say, around here we say this. We want to be contributors, not consumers, right? We want to develop a church of contributors, not a church of consumers. Why? Because we have a culture of consumers rather than contributors. There are so many people in our culture who want to consume, consume me, give me, give me, give me, and not contribute, that we want to be different. We want to be a people who are contributing. So we admonish those people, come alongside of them in love and say, hey, here's what I see in your life. You're causing a lot of disorder, you have a lot of good ideas, but you don't have a paycheck. That's not a good thing, right? The person who's always got another idea, my ship's going to come in, and this idea is going to work out, and it's going to be, and it's going to be, and it's going to be, and it's going to be. Show me a paycheck, and then we'll talk. Admonish the idol, number two. Encourage the faint-hearted. A faint-hearted person who's someone who is anxious, 
who's somebody who's worried, a faint-hearted person who's someone who is discouraged. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. Isn't it interesting that we need to know the difference? Now, some of us are admonish people, and some of us are encourage people. Guess which one I am? Wow, Susan laughed at me. That hurts. I tend to lean admonish. And then God gave me three daughters, and he said, you need to learn how to encourage. And it's been an amazing thing for me. I thank the Lord all the time because I need to learn those things in my life. I need to encourage more. I need to learn how to not just give the stern warning, but know how to build up and lift up and strengthen and give the encouragement. Because we don't treat faint-hearted people the same way we treat idle people, right? And isn't it interesting, as Christians, there are different words for different people, and it's our job to know the difference. As a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as an employer and an employee, it's my job to know the difference. He continues with that same line of thinking where he says that we are to help the weak. The weak here means those who are physically weak. It means those who are spiritually weak. And most commentators even believe that it means those who are, who are uh, socioeconomically weak, who, who are uh, people who have less, who are less fortunate, we would say. That the church should be a place that is known for helping those who are in need, physically and emotionally and spiritually and all of the above, that we help the weak. In addition to that, we should be patient with everyone. We got some patient people here today. It's like, I am so patient, especially when I drive. No, that's the one that nobody ever raises their hand for, right? Well, we got one, we got two, right? Be patient with everyone. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience is one of the signs, 1 Corinthians 13, of love. Patience with everyone. Can you imagine what a church looks like when everyone's patient with each other? Does that mean I have to be patient with the 49ers fans? No, not really. But other than that, right? Yeah, be patient with everyone. Finally, replace evil motives and actions with good. He says this, uh, verse 15. See that no one replays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We need to, relationally, we need to replace the evil with the good. Is this church a place that is known for rescuing struggling Christians. Like, I can't answer that completely. I, I hope it is. I hope that this would be a place where people would come in if they're struggling, and rather than feeling judged, even if they're being idle, rather than feeling judged, they would feel like people love and care about them and want to help them. Church, that's a place we have to continue to work. We have to continue to grow. Number three, we respond to God in worship. Healthy churches are always responding to God in worship. This is where that double alliteration thing comes in. I'm going to break this down. It's a bigger section. I'll break it into three pieces. Verses 16 through 18. We'll see how we respond to God's will. You're going to love these verses. It's like just getting into fall here in the Northwest, and we've had a bunch of rain here in the last few days. And so I'll remind you, verse 16, rejoice always. We're not going to see the sun for another nine months. All right, it's supposed to come out this afternoon. We'll see, right? rejoice always now just like i said i'm an admonish always person i'm a i am not a rejoice always kind of guy right i'm more of a grumpy most of the time kind of guy i have a couple of different emotions right i'm grumpy and i'm asleep that's a lot of how it works 
for most of us, rejoice always isn't that thing. Now, some of you are those annoying people. I'm Really, right? I hope you're not married to one of these annoying people. They get up every morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'm like, it's not even day because the sun's not out. Right? Five o'clock in the morning is not daytime. Some of you beg to differ. Yes, we need those good, encouraging people, man. We need you. I need you. I need the rejoice always people. Sometimes I need you after I've had my first cup of coffee, but I need rejoice people in my life because that's not my natural propensity and bent. And for a lot of us, guys especially, that's not our natural propensity. That's why I love men like Mr. Jewel right here because I, can, I know whenever I see Mr. Jewel, it's going to be something positive and happy. Even after a sermon, he's going to come up and he's going to have something positive. I'm like, if you can be positive after that, you can be positive anytime. Rejoice always. And then it says pray continually or pray without ceasing. And some of you use that as an excuse to walk around talking to yourself, right? This is like setting apart the prayer that we do from the ritualistic prayer that they would do in many cases in that day where they had these real prescribed times. You pray three times a day if you're Jewish and, and, and you would go to the temple or you would go to wherever you were and you would pray real specifically and it became a ritual. And what he's saying is make prayer a part of your everyday life. Prayer is something that's part of your heart. It's something that you do. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. There's an important little two-letter word right there. Give thanks for all circumstances. We get that one wrong sometimes. Christians get this weird theology sometimes with verses like this. They say, oh, you're you're supposed to give thanks for all circumstances. And then rather than grieving when we should grieve, we put on a fake smile and pretend like nothing ever happened. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It says give thanks in all circumstances. You know why? Because I can't control the circumstances, but I can control my response. And what I don't need when that diagnosis comes in and when that relationship falls apart or when that big tragedy happens in life, I don't need somebody coming and saying, well, give thanks for all circumstances. But what I do need is somebody to walk beside me, put their arm around with me and say, we can give thanks even in the midst of this. That's what God really wants, man. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Want to know the will of God? That. My mom had this phrase growing up. I was a nice kid. And she would always come to me regularly, probably at least once a week. She'd say, Stephen. I knew when I heard Stephen. Y'all call me Steve. When I heard Stephen or Stephen Vincent. And she would say, you need an attitude adjustment. Right? You parents say that to your kid? You need an attitude adjustment. That's what this is, right? It's an attitude adjustment. It is for me as a pastor. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Like, that's called an attitude adjustment. And what I need to do, not so much as try to change all of my circumstances, but I need to change my attitude. That's responding to God in worship. I respond to God in worship when I, when I change my attitude and I follow what God's will is in Scripture. Not only that, But he talks about responding to God's word, 19 through 22. Verse 19 says this, Do not quench the spirit. Do not give, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So here's the thing about some of these verses. 
is that these are verses that often get misrepresented by people who are looking for a spiritual experience. And again, in an experience-heavy culture, in a feelings-first kind of culture, usually we're always looking for a spiritual experience of some sort. And rather than following God's will in things that are simple and clearly laid out, we need a word from the Lord, a direct revelation, a dream, a vision, an ecstatic utterance, some big spiritual experience. And what often happens is that people that, that follow that line of reasoning read these verses and say, See? Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, etc., etc. That's a misrepresentation of what Paul is saying here. To quench the spirit is this. It's, it's simply to resist the spirit's work. And when you follow the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, most often you see the Spirit of God, as we say here, using the Word of God or the Word of God's people to change people's lives. The Spirit of God is, is usually the work, when you read the New Testament, the work that the Holy Spirit is doing is not giving these prophetic words and direct revelation and these special utterances and dreams and visions and ecstatic languages and all of those things. What it's usually doing is convicting you of sin, Right? So when you're doing something or watching something or thinking something that you know is not right, that like the Spirit of God for the Christian is saying, nope, 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 won't give you peace, won't give you rest. The Spirit does things like encourages us, like fills us so that we can sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and not be jerks to each other, right? It's just real simple everyday life stuff. Corinthians says that the Spirit of God helps us to read the Bible and understand it and apply it to our lives. The quenching the Spirit is when I just push that out of the way. I don't respond to God, I don't respond to God's Word, and I quench the Spirit of God. Likewise, prophecies, and we don't have the time to go into that, but prophecy in in the Old Testament included something called foretelling, which was they were telling the future. God's going to do this, and it might be soon future, it might be long future, it might be both, but that was called foretelling. But most of what the prophets did was something called forthtelling, where they said, thus says the Lord, And they referred to the Word of God as they had it at that moment, for those people in that moment. That's why even very conservative Bible scholars and teachers believe that the act of preaching, of opening God's Word and clearly understanding that and presenting it and applying it, is a New Testament equivalent, not to prophecy like Old Testament prophecy, not to direct revelation. I do not have a direct revelation from God. As you will all attest, I say stupid stuff up here all the time. Amen? Come on, that's your chance. Thank you. right? No, but this is a way of forthtelling so that we know and we understand what God has to say to us. And when I preach and teach it to you, I first sit under it myself. And so we don't despise the, the prophecy of God's word, the forthtelling of what God wants us to hear. We don't quench the spirit in that way. We respond to God and we respond to God's word. He says to test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. It's interesting, in the book of Acts, I think 17 or 18, there's a group of people called the Bereans, and they said that the Bereans were of more excellent character than the Thessalonians, the people that this letter was written to, because they searched the Scriptures. That teachers like Paul came in, and the revelation that they already had from God, that what Paul said, they held it up to the light of Scripture. That's what we need to do. So very, very quickly, if you're these note-taking people, this is when your pencil is going to smoke a little bit. I want you to know how do we test everything, right? I'll give you a handful of things, and I'll do it really quick. Number one, we test through Scripture. Is the guy on YouTube saying stuff that's in accordance with Scripture? Is the new Bible study that the, new, that the public publisher company came out with, is it saying things that are related to Scripture? Scripture is number one. Jesus is number two. It's usually pretty good when the Bible study talks about Jesus, right? 
Okay? So is it talking about scripture? Is it focusing on Jesus? Uh, the gospel? Is it proclaiming the gospel? Is it just giving you self-help and good ideas and here's a verse tagged on? Is it proclaiming the gospel? Number four, and I have to do that because I broke my fingers in college, okay? Number four is the character of the witness, right? The character of the person that's talking and speaking and sharing. You test that. Bad people say good things, right? We need to test the character of the people who are who we're listening to on YouTube and the podcast and those things. And then finally, number five is growth. Is this like pushing people toward true Christian growth? That's how you test the spirits. You take that filter to YouTube. You take that filter to your podcast, right? Scripture, Jesus, gospel, character, growth. Take all of those things and test. Then you hold on to what is good and you abstain from all of the evil in those things. We respond to God's will. We respond to God's word. And there's got to be one more W. Did anybody guess it yet? God's work, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. He talks about the second coming again. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Here's what I want you to know, Christian. That God's faithfulness is at work in your growth. If you're a a follower of Jesus, God is faithfully at work in your growth. The hard times, the good times, the trials, the tribulations, that God is at work in your growth. Paul said it like this to the Philippians. He said, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. When? Tomorrow? Next week? When I turn 50? No. At the day of Christ Jesus. On and on and on. But God's faithfulness is at work in your growth. And he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Our last point. Healthy churches reflect the grace of Jesus. Sometimes when we read and study these New Testament letters, the little pieces at the end, we just kind of discard. Like That's just Paul trying to get off the phone and he's just not sure how to right? But each of them means something. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I know the teenagers are excited for me to explain that. I will. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me tell you what those four things look like. Number one, it's praying for your leaders. You reflect the grace of Jesus to me when you pray for me. When somebody comes up and says, man, I pray for you every week. I pray for your girls. I pray for your wife. Like that reflects the grace of Jesus. Can I tell you that I need your prayers? As I said earlier, man, this is not an easy job. And it gets harder and harder and harder as the days progress. And you can reflect the grace of Jesus by praying for your leaders. Number two, that holy kiss thing is a way of saying that they would extend warmth and genuineness and respect to others. Now, I've been told that there are Middle Eastern countries where grown men still do this. We're not in a Middle Eastern country, so do not come up to me at the door, okay? Unless you're my wife, don't come up to me at the door. I'm just saying. Yeah, but how do we extend warmth and genuineness? How do people come into here and feel like this is a place where I could get along? We're, we're guests on the, back door, on the back wall where guests become friends and friends become family. How do we make that happen? Extending warmth and genuineness and respect to other people. 
Number three, we need to stay centered on God's word. When he says, and it's an interesting verse, 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. This is staying centered on the word of God. And as a church, I can at least tell you when I'm here and when Lauren's here, we will stay centered on God's word. We'll stay centered on opening scripture. That's why we go through books of the Bible. We're not doing TED Talks, self-help. We're going to stay centered on the Word of God because i got a lot of bad ideas and not many good ones, but God's Word has all the ideas we need. Staying centered on God's Word and then finally staying grounded in grace. And I want to reiterate, verse 28 is not a way for Paul to just end the letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That the only way we have any prayer of doing 20 imperatives. Some of you feel like you just drank from a fire hydrant, right? That was a lot of material. The only way that we have any chance of doing the things that God has called us to is that our hearts have been changed and we're grounded in the grace of God. The only way that we're going to respect spiritual authority and rescue struggling Christians, that we're going to respond to God in worship, the only way that we're going to reflect the grace of Jesus is if that grace has changed our hearts. And it changes our hearts by, first of all, becoming a Christian, admitting that, you know what, I, in fact, am a sinner, not just by choice, but by nature. And that sin separates me from a relationship with God. And that's why stuff is so messed up in my life and the world. And that I trust in Christ as my Savior. And then that starts to put things back together because it gives me the perspective. And as Christians are made healthy, churches are made healthy. I want to leave you with this challenge this morning before I pray. We put out this sermon supplement every week, and I give you some questions to think about, some things to work through. And the way that I laid it out this week is I just gave you all the points. So if you picked it up earlier, you already knew that you had a long time to go until the sermon was over, right? You already had the whole outline. It's already there. But I've given you space in there because what I want you to do is I want you to look at all these commands and then say, okay, what is God calling me to do out of all this? How's God changing the way I think out of all this? And I want to challenge you this week to, to, to make some application in your own life. There are paper copies back there on the back table um, that you can pick up. The QR codes in front of you will take you to our app. Uh, you can get the sermon supplement. You can get the PCBC happenings that will tell you everything that's going on here. You can fill out a connect card, um, get prayer for anything that you need, all of that good stuff. But let's apply this. So as I close, church, thank you. It's a privilege to be part of this church. It's, a, it's pretty cool to wake up on Sunday mornings and actually want to go and do your job. It's exciting to know that when I come up and I preach that people are going to care and are going to listen. And it's exciting to be part of what God's doing at this church. I feel like this is a strong, healthy church and we want to continue to go that way. Amen? Good. Stand with me. I'm going to pray that God will give us the grace to do it. Father, I am thankful for this group of people thankful for what you've been doing here. Thank you for the opportunity that it is and the privilege that it is to serve here. God, we are even thankful for uh, the first service and the people who were there and then the baptism and uh, just what we got to see uh, expressed through that. God, I pray that you would continue to help us to, to, to see what it looks like collectively to grow and go forward in a healthy way. God, individually this week, I want to pray for myself and for my Christian brothers and sisters who are here. God, that you would help us to continue to, to think about our lives, continue to think about uh, our growth, and continue to grow in the ways that your word calls us to. God, we are uh, 
grateful for your grace, and I pray that you would give it to us this week as we seek to live out what you've called us to live out. In Jesus' name, amen.